This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Before we begin, I just want to note that I'm talking about the terms female and feminine anatomy today, but want to note that not everybody who has those kind of biological markers are necessarily women or call themselves women or female. Just putting that out there, but for the sake of ease today, I will call it female anatomy. Thank you for listening. To say it best, we've been told by advertisers that we should say it with flowers. And flowers are a common subject in the history of art. After all, who doesn't want to paint or look even at a freshly budding bouquet? And some of the most famous and most lauded and even most expensive works of art in the world have been paintings of flowers. Think about works by Van Gogh, Monet, Morisot, Renoir, and, of course, Georgia O'Keeffe, one artist whose body of work is truly synonymous with flowers. This 20th century artist's monumental floral paintings are hallmarks of her oeuvre and notable elements in the canon of the history of art in and of themselves. Over the course of her career, Georgia O'Keeffe painted over 2,000 works of art, and around 200 of them contain flowers. When most people hear the name Georgia O'Keeffe, her enlarged floral canvases are among the first to spring to mind. At face value, these works really show O'Keeffe's exploration of various floral specimens. And by manipulating these flowers, Georgia O'Keeffe used them as vehicles to explore things like abstraction and to format her own individual visual language. Some of her critics and fans, though, would argue that O'Keeffe's floral images are more than meets the eye. And in fact, a popular belief is that these flowers are a direct reference to the female body. In 2016, an article published by The Guardian was entitled Flowers or Vaginas and cast a light on this ongoing art historical debate about Georgia O'Keeffe's floral series. The article states that only a handful of artists have their life's work reduced to a single question. O'Keeffe is regarded as the mother of American modernism and one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Yet, this question follows her and has cast a shadow on her floral paintings and on her legacy. So, let's get into it today. Is her floral series really just paintings of flowers? Or is there more to it? Is this a way for an artist to simultaneously make a political or feminist statement? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This is a new season, season 10, where we are going to dig deep on some great art historical facts and fictions. In this episode, we are circling back to Georgia O'Keeffe, one of the most singular artists of the 20th century. Are her floral paintings really risque interpretations of the female anatomy? This is the Art Curious Podcast. 
exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. When we think of the foremost female artists throughout history, chances are probably good that a modern artist, i.e. someone from the 20th century, as opposed to earlier or later, is probably the one who will spring to mind. And if Frida Kahlo is not the first female artist who enters your brain, then it might be Georgia O'Keeffe. As we discussed previously on episode 76 of Art Curious, Georgia O'Keeffe was an extraordinary American painter whose specialty involved creating these beautiful pictures that inched closer and closer to abstraction, all while honing a trademark and super identifiable style that celebrated the beautiful little things in life, including sometimes the smallest detail of even the smallest flower. And chances are high that it is a flower. Again, these bright blooms, dramatically cropped, like you've zoomed in on them with a telephoto lens. That's what you are really imagining when you first picture a Georgia O'Keeffe painting in your head, even though she did so much more than these quote-unquote flower paintings. Throughout her long career, as I mentioned, she produced about 2,000 works of art, with flowers making up a little more than 10% of her total output. In addition, she painted these indelible urban scenes, vast landscapes, and lots and lots of cow skulls. Her name has become synonymous with a certain westernized version of mid-century modern American art. And, as always, she is then always in vogue, especially among museums and collectors. So Georgia O'Keeffe is at once both trendy and completely timeless. Let's discuss some of the salient details of her upbringing and training as a quick review for those who are longtime Art Curious listeners and a little introduction for those of you who may be new to the show and also to art in general. Georgia O'Keeffe was born on November 15, 1887, near Sand Prairie, Wisconsin, to Ida and Frances O'Keeffe, and she was the second of their seven children. Early on, Georgia set herself aside from her siblings by showing off an incredible amount of artistic talent, which her parents encouraged, and they provided her with private art instruction where possible. In 1905, when she turned 18, O'Keeffe made her desire to become a working artist official when she enrolled at the Art Institute of Chicago and a year later studied at the Arts Student League of New York receiving formal training with a conventional European focus that emphasized drawing from life and also from casts. A few years later, in 1908, she decided she needed a little break from schooling, so she moved back to Chicago for four years to work as a commercial artist. But she didn't leave formal training behind either. While attending a summer course in 1912, she became acquainted with the work of Arthur Wesley Dow, a painter and a commercial artist whose theories about art techniques and art's mission truly changed O'Keeffe's conception of her own work. She was struck by Dow's encouragement to forego academic painting styles and subject matter in favor of creating abstract art, focusing on things through line, color, and mass. What a simple, yet really surprising idea. And that, along with Dow's use of art making as kind of self-exploration, all of this stuck with her. As she later said, quote, his idea, meaning Dow's idea, to put it simply, 
was to fill a space in a beautiful way." Unquote. And it was based on that basic tenet that she began to produce what would eventually become that very eye-catching Georgia O'Keeffe style. And it caught someone else's eye, too. Several of the drawings she produced during this period made their way to the famed photographer, gallery owner, and O'Keeffe's future husband, Alfred Stieglitz. Stieglitz is considered to be the big daddy of modern photography in the United States, first and foremost. But he was also a huge patron and promoter of the arts in New York City at the beginning of the 20th century. He was the founder and director of a prominent gallery known as 291, though its full official name is the much more cumbersome Little Galleries of the Photo Secession. Not only did Stieglitz use his gallery to promote photography as an artistic medium that was both worthy of respect and admiration as much as painting and sculpture were, which was a pretty radical thought, though, at that point, but he also exhibited traveling shows by the leading figures in the European avant-garde. So people like Matisse, Rodin, Pablo Picasso, and others. Figures whom Georgia O'Keeffe also super admired. The mutual professional interest that both O'Keeffe and Stieglitz enjoyed grew into a personal acquaintance, which then evolved into a mentorship and then later progressed into a slow-burning romantic relationship, thus becoming one of the most fertile love affairs in the history of American art and one that is beautifully documented in thousands of letters and hundreds of Stieglitz's own photographs. The couple married in 1924, and it was through Stieglitz's connections that O'Keeffe became acquainted with artists among the likes of Marsden Hartley, Arthur Dove, John Marin, and Paul Strand. This network of artists really helped to influence O'Keeffe's semi-abstract style. But it was nature itself that was probably the biggest influence. And we're going to be talking about that next, after a quick break. So stay with us and support our show. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy, and I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. 
As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. I have had a little bit of trouble sleeping in the past year, so I have needed to find something that will help me manage my sleep problems. And that is when I turn to Feels, because Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It is hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce my stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, all without hangover or addiction. I place just a few drops of Feels CBD oil underneath my tongue and I can feel the difference in my anxiety levels within minutes. I have been using Feels' standard tinctures to find the relief and the relaxation that I so want. And the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. And in fact, Feels is great because they offer a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you can find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the right and best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership also makes your self-care easy because you can save time and money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any point. Become a member today by going to feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious and you will get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. That is F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious to become a member and get 40% automatically taken off your first three months with free shipping. Feels dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. In the early years of their relationship, Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz lived in Lake George in New York's Adirondack region. Inspired by the lush rural landscape surrounding her there, Georgia O'Keeffe felt transformed, lost in the moment, and she wanted to share this incredible sensation with the viewers of her works of art. She aspired to portray nature from this sensory perspective, one that would allow viewers to experience a unique encounter with something that usually goes unnoticed. She especially felt this about something as small as a beautiful flower. Very famously, she once declared, quote, When you take a flower in your hand and really look at it, it's your world for the moment. I want to give that world to someone else. Most people in the city rush around so. They have no time to look at a flower. I want them to see it, whether they want to or not. Unquote. So to fix this rush-rush-rush mindset, O'Keefe scrutinized flowers and plants as if each was an individual, basically creating a portrait of a particular item. The result is a highly detailed, sometimes ethereal and breathtaking close-up image. Voila! Those O'Keefe florals that you are probably imagining right now. A big way to enjoy something small that usually passes us by. In 1925, O'Keeffe exhibited her first large-scale flower painting in New York, a piece called Petunia No. 2, now part of the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was inspired by flower beds that the artist had planted at Lake George, where she could follow their growth up close and personally. Ultimately, 
Petunia number two gets its inspiration directly from the blooming phase itself. So that is what her take is. This flower's blooming vivid petals that are utterly consuming the canvas, as if we're looking at it from under the lens of a magnifying glass. But she abstracts it into these curls and swaths of color. And as viewers, we just have to stop and look, to peer closely, and to have our expectations of flower painting shattered, even just for a moment. We don't just brush past them as if they are your typical still-life painting, a flower that is delicately and precisely wrought. This is something bigger, bolder. And if you'll pardon the pun, it grabs us in a way that really makes us stop and smell the flowers. And thus began a lifelong study on O'Keeffe's part, a continual return to those zoomed-in, closely-cropped florals that allows us, the viewers, to come face-to-face -face with even the most minute elements of a blossom. Take, for example, her many canvases illustrating the red canna lily. Throughout her life, O'Keeffe would find herself enamored, her eyes captured by one type of flower in a garden or the landscape, and then she would paint versions of that bloom over and over again. The red canna was one of the flowers that grabbed her beginning in the early 1920s, and she created versions of this lily in various degrees of close-ups, in watercolor and oils, with versions now found at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art, the High Museum in Atlanta, and of course, the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe. And it may have been one, if not multiples, of these red cannas that started to really grab people's attention. And one of those people was none other than Alfred Stieglitz, O'Keeffe's husband, who first responded to viewing one of her early large format cannas by scoffing, quote, Well, Georgia, I don't know how you're going to get away with anything like that. You're not planning to show it, are you? Unquote. As May Miller Claxton of Western Carolina University noted in a 2003 journal article discussing what she called the untamable texts of Eudora Welty and Georgia O'Keeffe, there had already been some discussion of the supposed feminization of O'Keeffe's works. Now, remember that this was the 19-teens and the 1920s, and having O'Keeffe taken seriously as a painter, and not just a woman painter, was a particularly irksome problem for both O'Keeffe and her husband. We'll get back to that in a moment. But Stieglitz's knee-jerk immediate reaction to her floral pictures was something more. For him, he thought it was something too feminine, but nothing short of an overt metaphor for female genitalia. In the soft, fluttery curves and the inky reds and purples of the red canna, Stieglitz saw biology, passion, and power. And he wasn't alone. In her biography, Portrait of an Artist, author Lori Liesel mentions the experience of an owner of an O'Keeffe floral who discovered that a visitor once used the painting as a prop to teach a child about sex. And this association with sex and O'Keeffe, or at least if not sex exactly, then anatomy, perhaps, has stuck. O'Keeffe herself was fairly shocked about the whole thing because, as the story goes, it was not her intention. In a 1939 text produced as a companion to an exhibition of some of her flower works, she said, quote, Well, I made you take time to look at what I saw, 
and when you took time to really notice my flower, you hung all your associations with flowers on my flower, and you write about my flower as if I think and see what you think and see of the flower, and I don't." Unquote. At the same time, even O'Keefe's phrasing of my flower, not the flower, feels somewhat sensual. It's her flower, not the flower. She painted it, sure, so it is hers, but some have argued that she painted, most specifically, the reproductive elements of the flower itself, the pistils and stamens. But this was not what Georgia O'Keeffe had meant for us to see. She had meant for us to stop and admire the flowers in a whole new way, an innocent one, a way to admire even life's tiniest beauties. And people did stop and admire the flowers in an all-new way, to be sure. But this biological reading that many people had was, to the very end, irritating to O'Keeffe. But does that mean it's wrong to read O'Keeffe's florals in this way, just because the artist herself didn't like it? Is that okay? And what is the language of flowers, and how does it apply to Georgia O'Keeffe's works? We'll get into that when we come back from this short break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. After hours of dedicated research, nothing feels better than having that satisfaction of finally finding the information I've been looking for for the latest episode of Art Curious. You can get that same incredible feeling when you've been able to find your next great hire after your candidate search with Indeed. And if you are hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. You can do it all, attract, interview, and hire at Indeed. One of the things I love most about Indeed is that they are able to make everything happen in one place and so easily and that they partner with you on every single step of the process so that you can find the person with the right talents and skills that you need by using tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and you can do virtual interviews right there on Indeed. Indeed makes it easier for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. And you can pick what skills are important to you and get a clearer view of your top talents abilities faster. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. With Indeed Assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12% according to Indeed data worldwide. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com art. 
That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The last year or so has left me feeling, well, sore all the time, from reading in bed to sitting at my not 100% ergonomic home office chair. And if there's something that I've learned in the past year, it's that I also deserve a little break and to feel good. Because taking care of myself and my health is one of the most important things. And that's why you've got to check out Homedics. They have a whole line of massage products from a massage gun with a built-in hot and cold technology to a massage cushion that lets you lie down or sit up depending on your therapeutic needs to a three-in-one foot massager with vibration so powerful that it also loosens the muscles in your leg and lower back. Homedics has massagers that address your pain points from head to toe. I had the great privilege of testing out both their massage cushion and their foot massager, and let me tell you, they are both life-changing. And my neck really is feeling better and better. In 1987, a Detroit family founded Homedics to help make people's lives better. Today, they are the established leader in wellness and home health innovations backed by traditional wisdom and modern technology. Plus, they have an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating, so they are a brand you know you can rely on. Join the millions of customers who trust the Homedics family to take care of their family. Right now, if you go to homemedics.com art and use promo code art, you'll receive a free portable phone sanitizer when you spend $100 or more in massage products. A $60 value. That's H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com slash art and use the promo code art for your free portable phone sanitizer with a $100 massager purchase. Welcome back to Art Curious. Interestingly, one of my personal art heroes, the dearly departed feminist art historian Linda Nochlin, promoted a feminist and even overtly anatomical reading of Georgia O'Keeffe's florals. Very famously, Nochlin described O'Keeffe's 1926 painting Black Iris as a, quote, morphological metaphor for genitalia, unquote a connection she also called immediate, concrete, and, quote, that the two meanings are almost interchangeable, unquote. So for Nochlin, an O'Keeffe flower became shorthand for genitalia, and for the better part of a century, viewers have been seeing what they want to see. And our minds, I guess, have been in the gutter for most of that time. To be fair, there has been a long-standing connection between flowers and floral symbolism and especially coded female desire, a connection that O'Keeffe may have inherited in some ways, whether she liked it or not. Feminist literary scholars have noted in recent decades that coded language and imagery was particularly strong during the 19th century, peaking during the Victorian era, and all of it leaned on a so-called language of flowers, that was specifically used to discuss female sexuality and desire in a time period that was outwardly stodgy, but inwardly super randy. Flowers, then, could say what otherwise could not be said. You'll still see references to this so-called floriography when you read about the origin of the red rose as the flower for love and romance, or as yellow roses symbolizing friendship, daisies symbolizing innocence, and lavender, get this, apparently stood in as a marker of deception. But some of them went even deeper, with a whole slew of blooms standing in for the very sexy side of things. A 
Everlasting P was standing for everlasting pleasure. Fleur-de-lis for a burning, fiery passion. Geraniums were invitations for secret trysts and meetups. The dog rose was about the meeting of pleasure and pain. And the peach blossom, which sent a very specific secret message. I am your captive. Ooh, it's getting a little hot in here, you guys. All of this to say, it was a legit and a widely known thing, with references in books by the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen, in poems by Baudelaire and Emily Dickinson, and was still very much in the collective consciousness of Western Europe and the U.S. by the turn of the 20th century. Nevertheless, this doesn't necessarily mean that it was the code that Georgia O'Keeffe lived and worked by. For her, it could have been that a rose was a rose was a rose, to badly paraphrase Gertrude Stein. When looking at the long-lasting assumptions about O'Keeffe's florals as sexual or anatomical metaphors, it makes sense to consider the timing surrounding these never-ending rumors. Remember that they started almost 100 years ago, not long after the artist debuted her first large-scale florals in the late 19-teens and early 1920s. By the 30s, she was vehemently denying their interpretation as anatomical stand-ins, and that should have been the end of the conversation. But remember Linda Nochlin getting all fired up about those morphological metaphors with their immediate and concrete connections. Nochlin, as many art-curious listeners know from our past conversations, really burst onto the art scene indelibly with her 1971 magnum opus, an article in the magazine Art News entitled, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Nochlin is the feminist scholar of art history the mother of feminist art scholars, though there were many others who are equally important. And her work coincided early on with the 1970s arrival of second-wave feminism. The power of women at this point was trumpeted loudly and fiercely. And according to art historian Anna Chave, so many feminists began to champion O'Keeffe's works as symbols of sexual liberation and female empowerment. Their choice was to supplant their political statements upon these paintings. O'Keefe had never intended it, and frankly, she hated it. But here's the thing that I always stand by as an art historian. Though, not being an artist myself, I firmly believe that art is for everyone, and that a work of art can mean something different to everyone. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but truly, so is meaning. We can do our best as curators and art historians, and I'm speaking from experience here on both ends, we can do our best to help you to understand a work of art, but understanding isn't the same thing as meaning. What a work of art means can be whatever you want it to mean, and it may be very different than what the artists themselves intended. And for me, that should be okay. Now, I know a lot of artists personally who want their work to only mean one thing, and sometimes that's hard. But art affects us all differently and connects with us on different emotional levels. For some, ascribing some kind of essential femininity to O'Keeffe's works is inescapable, regardless of whether or not O'Keeffe innately saw her work as being feminine in any way. O'Keeffe, by the way, hated that flowers were deemed feminine, hated that they were praised in that regard, or also that she herself was praised as a woman painter due to her chosen subject matter. As she long protested, quote, I am not a woman painter, unquote. 
And just as some think that all those florals are innately womanly, there are some who see vaginas, vulvas, and more in them. It's no coincidence that in her own magnum opus, The Dinner Party, Judy Chicago gives Georgia O'Keeffe pride of place at her feminist dinner party. A triangular table presenting 39 place settings inspired by 39 important women from history, all of whom are honored by Chicago with a sculptural plate involving vulvar iconography, i.e. the plate looks like a vulva. According to Judy Chicago, she included O'Keeffe as an inspiration or an aspiration, the exemplar of a successful artist who was, yes, a woman. But as Chicago added, O'Keeffe was also instrumental, quote, and pivotal in the development of an authentically female iconography, unquote. O'Keeffe, for so many, represented the ultimate in flowers and powers. Coming up next time on Art Curious, Colin Firth and Scarlett Johansson sold me on this idea that Vermeer was enamored of his most famous sitter. But was she actually a maid in his household? We're continuing to discuss facts and fictions in art history in two weeks. Join us then. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks again to Mary Manfredi for her awesome research and writing help with this episode. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Season one is available now. Check subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. So find the links and more details about our show, including every episode's blog post at artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on all the socials at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us in two weeks as we explore the facts and the fictions of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.